When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Policy and perspective from D.C.'s top names. This is likely to all be litigated out in the various states around the country. I don't think that a law that was written before the Civil War should be used to dictate these intimate decisions. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Grasso sitting in for Joe Matthew today, and we're going to be talking about a setback to Democrats on redistricting, the Supreme Court using its shadow docket to reinstate a racially gerrymandered congressional map in Louisiana. We'll talk to Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr about that and find out what's happening at the court tomorrow, the last day of the term. There's a battle over redistricting playing out across the country, and yesterday the Supreme Court, without any explanation, reinstated a Republican-drawn congressional map in Louisiana that a federal judge had said dilutes the power of black voters just as the court had done in a similar case involving an Alabama map in February. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. Greg, before we get to the Louisiana case, some of us foolishly expected that today would be the last decision day for the court. It only issued two decisions, leaving two controversial cases for tomorrow. Any idea why? Well, the court has a lot on its plate, June. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they tend to spread things out a little bit. So we'll end up with three opinion days this week. And that's not too unusual for the last day of the Supreme Court term. And tomorrow there's going to be a special ceremony? There will be. Uh, the newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, will be sworn in at noon. That's when Justice Stephen Breyer's uh, retirement takes effect. So, Greg, Tell us about this Louisiana case, which the, sh- the court dealt with in its shadow docket, meaning that there weren't the usual um, arguments before the court or briefing schedule. Yeah, as you said, it is very similar to an Alabama case they've already dealt with, and they are going to hear arguments in the Alabama case in the fall. And back when when the similar thing happened in Alabama, a, a lower court said 
Alabama needs to have a second heavily black district under the Voting Rights Act, uh, and the Supreme Court blocked that ruling and said in that case that uh, it's too close to the election and that we, we kind of have this rule that's known as the Purcell principle that uh, dictates that as we get close to an election, federal courts shouldn't change the election rules. And that's uh, kind of the explanation that the court gave at the time there. Um, Louisiana, similar situation. Louisiana is one-third black. It has six congressional districts, and under the Republican-drawn map, only one of the districts was going to be majority black. And uh, similar thing, uh, trial judge said that violates the Voting Rights Act. You need to draw a map with a second uh, majority black district. Supreme Court uh, then intervened and, and blocked that and did not give an explanation, as you said. All right. Craig, thanks so much. We're going to let you go so you can get ready for those two decisions tomorrow, which are going to be blockbusters, one on the EPA and one on the Remain in Mexico policy. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Joining me now is Derek Muller. He's a professor at the University of Iowa Law School who specializes in election law. So, Derek, Louisiana has six members of Congress, but only one of the districts is majority black, even though blacks make up one third of the state's voters. Isn't it fairly obvious that this Republican drawn map dilutes the votes of blacks in that state? Well, I think the Republicans in this case argued, look, if you look at how the black voters are dispersed throughout the state, they're more spread out than you might find in other parts of the country where they might be more concentrated. And so one of the things that the challengers pointed out here is to say, look, uh, when you're drawing a map, one of the things you require is compactness. And if you can't have a compact population, um, you're starting to draw districts on the basis of race, uh, and that's an improper racial gerrymander. So it's really a battle of expert testimony to try to figure out um, how much is too much when focusing on uh, attention to race and, and drawing compact districts. So what's your take on what should be done with this map? I think it's tough. <laughs> I think both this map and the Alabama map um, point to some very hard questions. In both cases, the black population has risen significantly, and yet additional congressional districts have not been created to give them opportunities. Whereas on the flip side, um, there's pretty persuasive evidence that uh, when computer simulations are drawn and you input a bunch of neutral criteria in and they simulate 10,000 maps, um, there are zero maps that give you two majority black districts or in Alabama, a, a second one. So um, that suggests then that there's a little bit of a thumb on the scale with a race conscious decision. So uh, underlying the Voting Rights Act is this question about trying to make sure that we have opportunities for black voters. And the question is how much we can focus on race in cases like these. Have the court's conservatives generally been hostile to voting rights plaintiffs and to the Voting Rights Act? And so is this order and taking the Alabama case another indication that it's open to weakening the role race may play in drawing voting districts? Yeah, it's sometimes hard with these shadow docket cases, as you point out, or as Greg pointed out about the Purcell principle, when the court says, let's not change the rules too close in time to the election. The filing deadline is next week, or the petition deadline begins next week in, uh, in Louisiana. Um, so that, that's not a merits question. That's just saying we want to hold serve and keep things in place and, and keep things running ahead of the next election. 
This is all sort of fallout from COVID and the census data getting delayed and, and pushing a lot of redistricting decisions later. So we can think maybe the court is making its decisions on that front, but then there's no question that it's it's perhaps peaking at the merits and some justices are much more persuaded than on the merits, um, you know, that there's too much focus on race in a couple of these uh, maps that uh, courts have been uh, too aggressive in trying to draw these districts for majority black voters, things like that. And uh, that, that maybe the a majority of the court is going to say, you know, what we're, we're going to trim back the Voting Rights Act a little bit in some ways that it's done in, in a handful of cases over the last decade. Trim the Voting Rights Act back a little bit. They've already trimmed the Voting Rights Act a <laughs> lot, haven't they? Well, so I think I, this is why I think it's all relative. Right? <laughs> when I think about Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, that was a real jolt to the system, right? Determining that uh, southern jurisdictions in particular are no, sub, are no longer subject to preclearance. And that's a lot of states um, dealing with some pretty significant um, you know, decisions that for decades, every election law had to go through approval from the Department of Justice. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with a proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Um, this is really kind of an evidentiary question. What kind of evidence do you have to put on to demonstrate compactness of districts? What kind of evidence do you have to show in terms of a majority black population, in terms of citizen voting age population, in terms of uh, just a numerical majority, whatever it might be? So um, to the extent that we're fighting over one congressional district in these two states, um, you know, I, I think in, in some respects, it could be a much more minor a jolt to the system than something like Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. But it certainly reflects a trend from the court to, to view the Voting Rights Act in, in a much more narrow fashion than, than plaintiffs have been have been trying to litigate for decades. And this is one area where Chief Justice John Roberts is united with his conservative mates there on the court, right? He was in the vanguard of the court that rolled back the Voting Rights Act. Right. So I think Chief Justice Roberts, you know, comes out of uh, some of the Reagan administration's positions in the Voting Rights Act and some skepticism about the breadth of its implementation in the late 80s. Um, and I think that's come through in his Shelby County decision. Um, he was in the majority in Brnovich a couple of terms ago, dealing with a, a related interpretation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. 
So, yeah, so Chief Justice Roberts has been pretty consistent, uh, siding with the, the more conservative view of the Voting Rights Act over the last decade. We've talked months ago about the number of cases over elections across the country. <laughs> Have you yeah. seen those being resolved or are they still moving along in the court system? Yeah, I mean, uh, many of these cases are um, sort of uh, being resolved, um, at least some of the smaller ones dealing with ballot access and, and resolving some questions about who's eligible for the ballot or uh, s- some party fights about who can appear on the ballot. But other ones like in uh, Texas or Georgia's uh, major election bills, these things are slow. <laughs> they're, they're very slowly making their way through the system. Um, you have significant issues. You have um a lot of parties, including a lot of interveners, a lot of public interest groups who want to participate in these uh, in this litigation. Um, there's significant expert testimony to demonstrate what kinds of effects the the changing of Dropbox locations or the effect of certain kinds of absentee voting rules might have. So in those major cases, these are slow and they have not moved very uh, far recently. So so it's a a long process to see them percolate up through the court system. One issue that I always found fascinating and concerning is the way some states were trying to take away power from the independent arbiters, let's say the Secretary of State, and find it, you know, more in the lower level administrators that might be more um, biased in favor of one party or another. Is that a problem? Well, I, I think the states have sort of had a variety of approaches. Um, so, so some of the problems have actually arisen maybe in the reverse, where local discretion is being taken away with more uniform rules at the statewide level. And local officials say, well, we need that discretion. We need some of the judgment calls to be made. Um, in other places, so Georgia is among them, um, there are certain canvassing boards where uh, you take away the Secretary of State's role and you replace them with a legislature-appointed candidate to that position. Um, but again, it's only one vote on the panel, and it's something the legislature picks in advance. And so we'll see in the future if anything happens with uh, that kind of personnel selection. Um, right. So far, we haven't seen a lot of dramatic changes um, in terms of the administration. Uh, there have been some kerfuffles in places like New Mexico and Colorado with some some uh, election uh, deniers, if you will, election skeptics. All right, uh, that Derek, we'll, sort of muddy Derek, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate your insights. We'll talk again, I'm sure. That's Derek Muller, professor at the University University of Iowa Law School. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Joe Matthew. Now that the Supreme Court has wiped out the constitutional right to abortion, the battle over abortion rights has shifted to the states, and state courts in particular. There have been a flurry of lawsuits over state abortion bans focusing on state constitutions in at least 11 states. One of those states is Wisconsin, where Democratic Governor Tony Evers vowed to fight over an anti-abortion law on the books for over 170 years. That's now technically the law again. I don't think that a law that was written before the Civil War or before women secured the right to vote should be used to dictate these intimate decisions on reproductive health. 
And abortion rights activists did win temporary rulings allowing abortions to resume in Louisiana, Texas, and Utah, but I emphasize the word temporary because the full hearings are yet to come. Joining me is Rachel Reboucher, the Interim Dean of Temple University Beasley School of Law and the James E. Beasley Professor of Law. Rebecca, does the strategy in these lawsuits depend on the state constitutions and whether, for example, a right to privacy is embedded in them? It does. Uh, It absolutely depends on the provisions of a state constitution. And those provisions can range from privacy protections, equality protections, liberty protections, autonomy protections. It, it, It truly depends on the clause at issue in the state constitution and how those how state courts have interpreted that language in the past. These cases are at the lower court levels right now. They're eventually going to go up to the state Supreme Courts. And state Supreme Courts in many of these states with restrictive abortion laws are dominated by justices who are Republicans or were appointed by Republicans. In many states, they have to stand for election. So is it likely that they'll take the step to protect abortion rights? So again, I think we might see courts holding that state constitution, state Supreme Courts do not protect a state abortion right, um, but we might be surprised. I think the, the place to look is what is the constitutional jurisprudence of that state? How recently has the court interpreted that provision? Has it been applied to, to rights, uh, contraception, uh, intimacy, relationships, parenting, a cluster of relational and intimate rights that uh, might have also been provided protection under a state constitution? There's a lot of nuance here, and it will depend on what the Supreme Court in that state has said in the past and how it has interpreted those constitutional provisions in its in their in prior rulings. You know, it seems like going to the courts, the landscape is unestablished what's going to happen here, and it's probably not the best way, but it may be the only way right now. Is there anything the president can do by executive action or something else to maintain the right to abortion in these states? So I think you're right. I think the reason you see a flurry of litigation at the state level is because that is, uh, for litigators, the most immediate way to enjoy new bans on abortion, uh, uh, new bans on abortion that states are passing in the wake of Friday's Dobbs decision. But the federal government does have powers at its disposal through executive orders, even the more uh, probably controversial measure of declaring a public health emergency. The executive can marshal the powers of federal agencies that have expertise in various areas of health care provision uh, and financial support and in interpreting federal laws that could that could make a difference or that 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 might uh, impact upon abortion. There's even a suggestion that the federal government could set aside land, you know, lease land or do it on army bases and set up federal abortion clinics in these states. But everything seems to depend on, you know, the will of the Biden administration. And do you question whether the will is really, really there? 
I think the federal lands proposal is certainly a novel one, hasn't been tested, and from what I understand, there are real and serious concerns about the logistical difficulties of providing that care and the legal uh, objections that will soon be raised. But certainly it is a proposal that the Biden administration uh, has the expertise and uh, um, know how to try or to try to figure out how to mitigate those risks or solve those problems. But as you say, it's a question of will of whether or not some risk of, of pursuing a proposal like that are worth taking. Well, because... We we knew this was coming for a while. We certainly knew it since the draft opinion was leaked. And, you know, I th- there were things that the Biden administration could have put into motion and just didn't, just waited. And it seems like it's still waiting. You know, it's, it's, I did listen to the statement of Secretary Becerra, um, head of the HHS, Health and Human Services, yesterday. And there does seem to be thinking at the uh, level of the, yeah, the, in the Biden administration about what steps they could take. Um, but those steps, of course, have not been taken yet. And uh, I think that there is a strong argument to make that the Biden administration could do an audit, an inventory of what are the available measures, what are the available powers of different federal agencies, federal bodies, uh, and there, we, there is where we could see some action, and there we might have seen uh, a little bit more planning. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Thanks so much, Rachel. That's Rachel Riboucher of Temple University Beasley School of Law. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the case against former President Donald Trump. It's growing stronger, but will he be prosecuted? It was the most dramatic testimony at the January 6th committee hearings, perhaps the most dramatic in congressional history. Cassidy Hutchinson, formerly an assistant to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, portrayed a violent and out-of-control Donald Trump at the center of the plot to overturn the election. Hutchinson testified that she was in the White House on January 6th and recalled White House counsel Pat Cipollone coming to Meadows' office as rioters arrived at the Capitol saying they needed to speak to Trump. Something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. So what's next from the Justice Department, if anything? Joining me is Donald Ayer, adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. He served as deputy attorney general and principal deputy solicitor general under President George H.W. Bush. So it's seems clear that the January 6th committee is laying out a roadmap for the prosecution of former President Trump. How far do you think Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony moved the ball forward? I think it moved the ball forward a a, a good way. Um, I think, you know, one of the things we learned is that folks in the upper levels of Trump's group, certainly Giuliani, certainly Meadows, probably Trump, but we don't know for sure, were involved early on, uh, certainly by early January, very much involved in planning the events of January 6th. Um, we know that people in the White House um, and others expected uh, the risk of violence. Um, uh, some were very concerned about it. Some, like Rudy Giuliani, thought it was going to be a great day. Um, we know that uh, we learned that 
that on on the day, January 6th, President Trump was um, specifically and concretely aware that the folks there had weapons. Um, and, you know, his reaction, as everybody's now heard, was, was to want to take away the magnetometers because they weren't there to hurt him. So they, people with guns and other things could come on in and be present for the cameras when he gave his speech. Um, and then, of course, we, we, we learned that there was apparently some sort of a virtual physical altercation. Um, but the more important point was the dispute was about the fact that Donald Trump, after the speech, wanted to go to Capitol Hill uh, with his demonstrators who he knew had weapons. Um, for what purpose, one can only imagine. So it's an awful lot of information. But the biggest thing to keep in mind is that all of the evidence, the other the evidence from the other hearings of different episodes is part of this saga, this saga conspiracy to overturn the election. Um, that evidence has to all be seen together. And the biggest single point about it all is that maybe surprisingly, uh, for those who might have thought Trump might be kind of around the edges, he is the main actor in everything. He is the driving force who insists on going forward when his own people, many, many, many of them in many different settings are saying, don't do it. It's terrible. It's going to be a disaster. But he bowls ahead time so, and again, and he's the one doing it. So the Attorney General Merrick Garland appears to be very cautious. What are some of the factors that will go into a decision about whether or not to prosecute Trump? Well, there's the guidelines that guide the department, and they're, I'm sure they're emblazoned in his, in his mm-hmm. brain, and I know he's focused on them, and they're, they're the obvious things. The, the leading factors are the obvious things. You have to look at the, the nature and the character of the conduct of the wrongdoing, and, and how serious is it, and how big a deal, what priority should we give it? Well, here we have conduct designed to overturn our electoral process and essentially make it non-functional, couldn't have a more serious crime. A second factor um, right near the top of the list is, is deterrence important here? Is there reason to think that other people might be doing this? Do we need to have an important prosecution or more than one to deter people from this conduct? Well, we know that people all over the country are plotting to do something similar in 2024. Uh, states are enacting laws to allow them to do something similar in 2024. So deterrence is, is an urgent consideration. And the third factor on the list, um, near the top of the list of things that the guidelines say they're supposed to think about, is the culpability of the individual who you're considering filing charges against. And all of this evidence that we've just been talking about from all of these hearings, and certainly the evidence from this hearing, point at Donald Trump as the most culpable person who is doing most of the acts that are driving this whole complicated coup d'etat scheme that that we've watched unfold. But on the other side... On the other side, you have some things that are not in the guidelines, because I don't think they've been considered, which is, do we want to prosecute a former president of the United States, a first in history? Right. That's true. And you also have the factor of, um, gee, is there a chance he'd get off? And and that's certainly a consideration. That that actually, the likelihood of prevailing is another important thing that's in the Justice Department guidelines. Um, 
But I think, you know, and, and this is the judgment that Garland, that Merrick Garland is going to have to make. But I think that at the end of the day, when you look down the road at the consequences of not holding accountable the conduct here, particularly where the evidence at this point, and we don't have all the evidence yet, but we have an awful lot of it, um, where the evidence points very directly at Donald Trump as the prime mover, as the principal person who acted even though numerous people told him he shouldn't, and even though he plainly knew because he was told time and again that he really hadn't won the election. There was no serious fraud, and he had lost. So, you know, I, I, I know everyone is, um, is everyone who's thinking about this is, is quite concerned, and they wonder why Merrick Garland and why the department hasn't moved sooner. Well, I think it's entirely right that the department be moving gradually, that it be moving carefully. And the other thing I'll say is that one of the things that Merrick Garland has done that is so important after uh, what we saw under the attorney generalship of William Barr, where he politicized numerous ways over the two years of his term, uh, the department, and he used it time and again. People remember the Mueller report that he whitewashed. People remember intervening in criminal cases. People remember a lot of things that he did discussing ongoing investigations to give well, we're going to have to leave it the there election. we'll have to leave it there there's more of testimony more hearings to come thank you so much that's donald ayer of georgetown law school coming up next we're going to be talking about what's happening at the supreme court who's in charge face it your business is unique it faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Over the span of less than a week, we've seen bombshell Supreme Court rulings on guns, abortion, and religion, where the court's conservative supermajority has ignored precedent and rewritten the law. Last Thursday, the court expanded gun rights, nullifying the laws in New York and other states. Last Friday, the court wiped out the constitutional right to abortion, nullifying the rights of women in about half the states. And on Monday, the court upended the law on church and state, nullifying the protections of students' religious freedoms. It's not often you hear the governor of a state call out the Supreme Court as politicized and vow to get around a ruling. But that's just what New York Governor Kathy Hochul did. 
No matter what the Supreme Court thinks they can do, New Yorkers, you are protected. Protected from concealed weapons. Protected from concealed weapons in our subways, in our schools, and places like this. Each decision fractured the court along ideological lines with the liberal justices with no power except to protest in dissent. Joining me are Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheen-Zeno. So Jeannie, many of us were surprised by these rulings. Some were shocked. But should we have been? Didn't the new justices do just what they were chosen to do? They did. And June, just listening to you describe the last few days, it's, it's what a stunning term it has Seriously. been. Yeah, it, it's hard to even comprehend at this point, but they did tell us, they forecast what they were going to do. We knew it because of the release of the the draft decision in terms of at least the, the Mississippi case. And of course, this is the culmination of decades and decades of work by people on the right, the Federalist Society and others. So we shouldn't have been surprised. And yet, as somebody who teaches the court and watches it almost as carefully, not quite as you do, June. I have to say, looking at these two decisions back to back, the Bruin and then the Mississippi decisions last Thursday and Friday, it has been just stunning to see it all come to fruition so quickly in black and white, if only because Amy Coney Barrett just ascended the bench about a year ago. So, you know, it it is quite quick to see this, what seems like a race to the right and a, you know, a a progressive, rather a conservative court really, really focused on fulfilling its mission decades in the making. And then there was the religion decision on Monday, which people didn't even pay that much attention to because it's expected at this point that the court is going to rule in favor of religious rights. Americans' confidence in the court has hit a new low. This is according to a Gallup poll before these decisions. Only 25% of Americans say they have confidence in the court. That's a drop of 11 percentage points in the last year. Now, Rick, Justice Alito said in the abortion decision that the majority wasn't concerned with public opinion. But should they be? Oh, of course they should be. Uh, June, I mean, this is one of the things that creates legitimacy amongst institutions, right? I mean, it may have been an 11-point drop in the last year, but it's been down from up as high as 60%. I mean, when you have a court that has that kind of confidence with the American public, then then it's more likely to be a lot-abiding American public. But if the court only has a 25% approval rating, uh, who's going to stand by and watch the court rule and think, oh, well, that's the majority of the uh, American public who, who agrees with that. So it's, it is a credibility problem, and I think this court has to do more in the public domain uh, to reestablish the institution as something that Americans trust. But Jeannie, instead of a living constitution that evolves to expand liberties and equality, the court now appears to be relying on a dead constitution, history-only approach. I'm wondering what future Supreme Court arguments are going to be like. Your Honor, in the 1800s, there were no privacy rights or Miranda rights, so we shouldn't have them now. I mean, the court is on this path now. They are on this path, in my view. It, it, it is a, a, a misreading of history, of political history. It is a misreading of what the framers intended. And the problem for the court as an institution in terms of legitimacy, as you and Rick were just talking about, is it's those times when the court gets either ahead or behind of the country in a significant way that they lose legitimacy. Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, and Korematsu, and of course what led to the switch in time that saved nine when they were overturning the the efforts by the 
Roosevelt administration to address the worst economic crisis of the early 20th century. Those are the times when the court has lost legitimacy. It struggled to come back after that. And I fear this is where they are headed again, because no matter how they want to read the Constitution theoretically, the reality is we are in 2022. The reality is we do have weapons of mass destruction out on the street in terms of these AR-57s going into schools. We have women who need a right to privacy to seek medical care. And so when the court gets in a position where it is not understanding the time in which it's living, it does itself political damage because this is a legal but also a political institution. Rick, Democrats never seem to care enough about the Supreme Court when they're voting, unlike Republicans. Will it be any different in the midterms, particularly the abortion ruling? Will it impact voting or is it going to be, you know, it's just the economy stupid? You know, I, I think it could impact the uh, the elections in the sense of uh, driving vote. Uh, Democrats have had an intensity problem. Uh, and this is a reminder, uh, a, a very blatant reminder that elections have consequences, that 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 the court they have now that are rendering decisions that they disagree with as Democrats is as a result of a political decision that Americans made to install Donald Trump president of the United States. And so that could actually be a motivating factor for for Democrats in the midterm. Uh, The downside is uh, it's also exciting for Republicans who are the beneficiary of these decisions to say, look, we're actually finally getting what we want out of the Supreme Court because we turned out to vote and won an election. So, Jeannie, it's still called the Roberts call because he, Court because he is the Chief Justice, but, you know, you read article after article talking about how he's lost control. I mean, and, you know, we have to really acknowledge the fact that he may have gotten to overturning Roe eventually, but not right away because he's an incrementalist. So the other conservatives are moving so quickly. Is there anything he can do? He's in a tough position. I know I've been looking at some of these articles and to your point, there's been many talking about how he's lost control. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. You know, he gained control in terms of becoming the this, the swing vote on the court in 2020. So he's had that control for exactly <laughs> two years, even though he's been chief justice since 05. So it, it, it's been a quick a wink that he's had control in terms of being the most important voice on the court in terms of dictating decisions. That said, his incremental, you know, ability to move the court incrementally, that probably has been lost until and unless we see some personnel change on the court or if somebody has a change of mind or a change of heart. But I do think it's a bit of an overstatement to say he's lost the court. A chief justice is a first among equals, but it's really the swing vote that has the power on the court and he doesn't have that. He had it for two years. He doesn't have it right now. Rick, so there are things that can be done about the Supreme Court. It can be increased in size. It can be stripped of its jurisdiction over certain issues. It can the it can be required to have a supermajority on certain issues. So, but will anything be done? It seems as if Joe Biden, his administration, is not willing to even consider any steps moving any legislation this way. Yeah, it's it's a little interesting because um, this has been an administration that sort of swung for the fences on a lot of issues where they didn't necessarily have even their base of their party 
in the Senate uh, on board and in the House in some cases. Uh, but this is a practical consideration. They do not have the votes in the Senate to make any kind of structural change to the Supreme Court. You need 60 votes. They don't even have the 50 senators on the Democratic caucus willing to toe the line on this. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an academic conversation until there are significant changes in the electoral landscape. And right now, I mean, Republicans probably have as much an advantage as Democrats do to try to get to that magic 60 number on anything dealing with the courts. You know, Jeannie, what surprised me recently is you didn't used to hear talk about impeaching justices, but lately, since there has been talk about how Justice uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, allegedly, we'll say, lied at his confirmation hearing, Susan, uh, Senator Susan Collins says he told her something different about Roe, we heard Neil Gorsuch, and we, we basically all the justices at their confirmation hearings have said that Roe was settled precedent. So what about this, what do you th- make of the talk about impeaching a justice? Not that it would ever happen, but just the fact that the talk is happening. Yeah, it's been striking to me. Um, You know, I don't believe that these are impeachable offenses myself. I think they'd have a very hard time making that case. I do think it comes from a sense of frustration, particularly amongst Democrats, understandably. And I think one thing Democrats have to be very careful of is this sort of disjointed response. Uh, You know, I thought the response might be a bit more coherent. It's been a bit disjointed. So you hear a lot of fundraising, a lot of get out the vote. But on from the base, you hear a frustration, particularly young people who I talk to a lot, who say we did get out to vote, we did elect Democrats, and we're still here. So they really want a coherent approach to this from the administration, from Democrats. And that's one thing I hope they sort of get behind. Um, again, I haven't heard that coherent approach yet, and I think it's a danger for Democrats. But in terms of impeachment, I, I don't think these are impeachable offenses. I do think it's a time for us to revisit how the Senate Judiciary Committee and Senate as whole gives advice and consent on these confirmations and these nominations. It's been so interesting. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining me here. That's Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shinzano. And that's it for this edition of Sound On. Joe Matthew will be back. I'm June Grasso. Coming up, Daybreak Asia. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. 
Learn more at BloombergLive.com slash Sustainable Biz Singapore. That's BloombergLive.com slash Sustainable Biz Singapore.